This is what the Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and I'll give you a new spirit. I will put, I'll put him within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Lord Jesus, we've just sung, only, only you can do certain things. Only you can, can manipulate our hearts to control our hearts, to change our hearts, to transform our hearts. Only you. And so we come this morning with a sense of anticipation, a sense of expectation, a sense of dependency. We fall to our knees and we lift up holy hands and, and we say, Lord, we're waiting for you. Move. Transform our hearts. Take the, you, you have said that your spirit is the spirit of comfort. He's the comforter. And I pray that you would, you would fall on us as, as, as our comforter, one who would bring us grace. So many of us, Lord Jesus, are in desperate places this week. So many of us face circumstances that are overwhelming to us, and we need a touch of your Spirit. We need you to give us eyes, to give us clarity. We need you to, to bring your comfort. We need you to give us your peace, to give us your assurance, your promises, your presence. We need you, Lord Jesus. And so fall on us. We have sung it. We have sung from our hearts, Lord Jesus, fall on us. May your spirit superintend over everything that happens in this room and this building and in our hearts today. May you move in our hearts as we lay our hearts bare before you. Lord Jesus, would you show us those things that don't belong to you? Would you, would you replace them with your light, with your life, with your truth, with your grace, with your wisdom today? Lord, we need you. We need you to do what only you can do to change our hearts, transform us into your image. And so, Lord, we come to you and we open up your word today. You said that your word is light, that your word is truth, that your word brings grace. And so we hold up your word this morning. We esteem your word as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We esteem your word because as the Apostle Paul said, it's, it's, the, it's the power of the gospel. So Lord Jesus, we're, we're, we're holding up your word. We're seeking your spirit that we, that we might walk in you this morning. So we come to you with a sense of expectancy. Speak. Speak, we're listening. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Powerful time of music and worship this morning. Good morning. Great to be in the house of the Lord. I say that, but it's always true. I say it every week, and it's always true. Somebody said that to me this morning, too, and I, I just agree. I don't know about you, but this is kind of an island in the middle of the week, isn't it? A place of refuge, a place to just come and let your breath out or take a breath and, and let the Spirit speak. And I hope you have some other islands during the week of His Word and His Spirit. But boy, coming together as God's people, there's, there's nothing like it. Nothing like it. I'm excited about the Life Keys class that Ann was talking about. That'll start next Sunday morning. And 
And uh, so we'll be running two adult Sunday school classes, just if you didn't catch that. Our uh, Steve Toy is continuing the class on current issues, and then uh, Ann Malone will be taking the Life Keys class. So good stuff, good stuff. I hope you take advantage of it. So Matthew chapter 5, we're talking about the, we're moving into the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we've spent several weeks on the, on the Beatitudes, which is the Sermon on the Mount, but we kind of compartmentalize that and set it off by itself, but it's actually the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, just, just so you're not confused, we're skipping the end of the Beatitudes, the, the uh, verses 13 and on. You are the salt of the earth. We're skipping that. We're coming back to it in a few weeks. So don't be alarmed. Don't, don't be worried about that this morning. I know some of you are just hanging on, on every Sunday, but uh, we're coming back to that in a, in a few weeks. So this morning, we are at chapter 5, verse 17. Let me read that as we get started this morning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Bible is amazing. I, 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 there's a lot of directions we could go with this text this morning, but I, I want to camp on... on a couple of things this morning. One, and that is, I hope that you have a sense of awe for the Scriptures. I hope you have that already, but I hope when you leave here this morning, you have a sense of awe for what God has done through the Scripture and the power of God's Word for us. The Bible is amazing. Let's just look at it in the big picture. 66 distinct books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,300 to 1,500 years over a variety of geographic locations. It's written in three different languages, in the context of several cultures, and expressed in a variety of literary genres. Yet it contains common themes, a consistent history, and facts, and a coherent revelation of the God of the universe and his purposes. Let's keep going. Since the invention of the printing press, the Bible has been distributed worldwide. Bestsellers today are counted bestsellers if they sell hundreds of thousands of books. The biggest sellers may touch a million or, or maybe a little more. But the Bible has seen billions and billions sold and or distributed. Most books never get translated into other languages. But the Bible, according to Wycliffe's statistics, has been translated into over 2,800, almost 2,900 languages as of 2014 making it available to 80% of the world's population. And that doesn't even account for the, Bible, the presence of the Bible on the Internet. One Bible app, just one Bible app, version, has been translated into 799 languages 
and downloaded over 200 million times. That's just one Bible app. The Bible's amazing. Now, the way we got our Bible is another amazing story. I'd like to take the whole hour to just to talk about that, but time doesn't permit explanations on the validity of Scripture and how it came to be, but that's extremely important, and it's an amazing story. Now, I will only say this morning that studying the origins and the preservations of biblical manuscripts will leave you utterly amazed at how God brought us the Bible. Utterly amazed. God has taken great pains to deliver his word to us, and the story of it is amazing. And I encourage you to go, go find it. Um, Evidence that Demands a Verdict is one of my go-to books. And you should have that. You should, can I, I, don't do, I don't like to do shoulds very often, but you should have that book on your shelf. And you should read the chapters that talk about the origins of the Scripture and how we got them, because they, they will blow your mind. We need to know that as, as followers of Christ. The Bible is amazing because of its accuracy and knowledge that was way ahead of its time. Now, the Bible isn't written as an encyclopedia. It's not written as a science book. But when it speaks to the sciences, it's profoundly accurate and prophetic. And the sciences of anthropology, astronomy, biology, geology, archaeology, etc., the Bible is consistently ahead of its time for scientific accuracy. We shouldn't be surprised because God is the ruler of all the universe and he knows the beginning from the end, the alpha and the omega. He, he created everything, so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that all of a sudden his word is accurate. And sometimes when we don't understand it, sometimes when something doesn't quite make sense according to what we know today, a lot of the rule is just wait. Science will catch up to God's word and archaeology will catch up to God's word, Right? Somebody talk to me here. Yes, just wait. Time and time again, archaeologists show us that what we said was just not true in the Bible. All of a sudden, archaeology proves it. It might have to wait a few decades for it, but it'll happen. God will show it. And the same thing is true with science. But perhaps nowhere else in the Bible uh, is the Bible seen in its glory than in the area of prophecy. We've already spent time over the Christmas holiday talking about the fulfilled prophecies concerning the birth and the ministry of Christ. So I won't repeat those this morning. Hundreds of years before they came to pass, Scripture told us the details of the Messiah's coming. It told about his birth in Bethlehem, his, the exodus to Egypt, the entrance into Jerusalem as king, etc., etc. It's all predicted hundreds of years before Christ ever set foot on the earth. Prophecy is amazing, and God's Word is a book of prophecy telling us what God's about to do. Other prophecies and their accuracy will leave you astounded. For example, Daniel interpreted two sets of dreams, one from a pagan king and, and the other his own dreams, and he predicted the four great empires of the world for the next five centuries. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. He even predicted the rise and the power, the great power of Alexander the Great. The accuracy of his prophecies is so powerful that scholars believe that there was no way that that could have been written before they came to pass. No way. But research has shown that Daniel was the original author of those prophecies long before they ever came to pass. Prophecy tells us about the accuracy and the, the, the veracity of God's word. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple 
In Matthew 24, he said it would be destroyed so thoroughly that not one stone would be left upon another. That prophecy came true in A.D. 70. So the deeper you go into to proving or disproving its veracity, the more amazing its continuity, its accuracy, and its wisdom becomes. And yet despite the proof from so many angles, so much testing in all of the things of God's word, the Bible seems to be continually under fire as God's authoritative word. No other book has been so contested, so persecuted, so defamed, and so mocked as the Bible has been. And yet it stands. It's historicity, it's veracity, it's counsel for life and godliness, and it's revelation of God himself stands undeniably as the authoritative, the life-giving, the spirit-empowered, living word of God. Brothers and sisters, I'm doing a lousy job of explaining it, but the Bible is amazing. The Bible is amazing. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. Turn with me if you would. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5. We'll get back there eventually. Joshua chapter 1. There's so many passages that we could pick out about what the Bible says about itself, about what God says about the Bible. But I've just chosen two this morning. Joshua 1, verse 8. This book, of the, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And then he goes on to say to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And it's all on the foundation of his word. Okay, don't look at the screen. I put the verse up on the screen. Don't look at the screen. Look in your Bible. If you have your pencils with you, underline that passage in your Bible. Okay? It, I'm hoping it's underlined already. Okay. All right. It should be. All right. 2 Timothy 3. This is another passage that I'm hoping is, is underlined in your scripture, but I have it on the screen. But if you have your Bible, turn with me there. And let, your, let your Bible speak to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 14. Paul said to Timothy, young Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, what's he saying there? From childhood, somebody, somebody has been investing the word of God into your life from early childhood. And now Timothy has grown up and he's become an understudy of the Apostle Paul. He's become a pastor. So he says to him, as for you, continue in what you have learned and you have firmly believed. And you've been equated with the sacred, sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here it is. Underline this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God. It's the heart of God. It's what, it's, it comes from the depths of his being to teach us who he is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible that you hold in your hand is everything that you need, along with the Holy Spirit, to equip you for walking with the Lord. It's right here. God gave us his word so that he could reveal himself to us, his character to us, his truth to us, so he could pour out his grace on us so that we might be equipped to walk with him and to change the world under his power. The Bible is amazing. So as we consider the Bible as God's word, we have to conclude that we have to have, we must have a high view of Scripture. God told General Joshua that it should always be on our tongue and it should always be on our heart, that we should be careful to do all that is written in it, everything that it calls to us to do. As we pursue God's wisdom and truth in his word, he will lead us. He will make us to prosper in all godliness in life. That's a high calling, and that's a high view of Scripture. And that's what he's calling us to. So if we go back to Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus leaves the Beatitudes behind and turns and goes deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, his first stop is to reinforce the validity and the authority of God's Word. That's the first place he goes after the Beatitudes. He describes his relationship to the Scripture, and he calls us to hold the Scriptures in a high and proper view. Jesus holds out. Jesus holds out his new teaching in relationship to the law of Moses, what we call the Old Testament. The teachers of his day and the audiences that he was attracting wondered if he was throwing over the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They wondered if he was throwing over the, the scriptures, the law of Moses. With this new teaching, Jesus, are you just discarding it? That was the question of the day. And so when we come to this teaching, it's in that context. They wondered where he is on the Old Testament. And we'll see as we, as we progress through this passage that that question still stands today. What do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with Scripture? So let's look at it. First, first place I want to camp is Jesus' view of the Scripture. Remember that this, this teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, was all in the early part of his ministry. The, he, had, he was just getting into his teaching. They were just getting to know him. And great crowds were following him. He had called his disciples, but they were just learning who he is. They were just beginning this journey with Jesus. He was also gathering huge crowds. He was also gathering the attention of the religious leaders already. And and we've seen in the Gospels that when when we look at this time of teaching of Jesus, this early teaching time, it is said of him that he taught as one who had authority, right? They were amazed because he had such authority. And that, that was part of the problem. They were amazed. He's teaching with authority, but only the Scriptures have authority. Who is he to teach with such authority? That was part of the amazing thing of it. And that goes into why he, he, he turns this corner as well. So the natural question. They were wondering if he was teaching a new belief system, he was overturning the law, and the natural question is, was he going to turn over the Old Testament? Was he going to reject it out of hand? So in a casual reading of Matthew chapter 5, we wonder why the sudden change of topics, why, why the 90-degree turn here in the text? 
Why does this teaching come right after the Beatitudes? This passage is a response to their very pressing questions and their concerns about his teaching. So here's what he says. First thing he says, verse 17, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I don't want you to think for one minute that I've come to abolish the law, which is another way of saying the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets and all that they have said. So what's he talking about when he talks about the law and the prophets? So put your audience, yourself in the audience of that day. You're a Jew that grew up in a Jewish home. And the disciples are a picture of that. Peter is a picture of that. You're a Jew that grew up in a Jewish home. You've been to synagogue regularly and you've heard the reading of the scripture and the teachers expounding on it every Sabbath. So what's your frame of reference if you're listening to Jesus right now? What is your frame of reference? We call it the Old Testament, but they called it the Scriptures in that day. It was the whole of Scripture. They thought of Moses. They thought of Abraham. They thought of wisdom, the wisdom of David and the wisdom of Solomon. They thought of the law being God's moral, judicial, and ceremonial laws to help them live in his promised land. That's what they thought of when they thought about the law. They thought about the prophets, Ezekiel, who we read from just a moment ago, Isaiah, Daniel, Haggai, Zephaniah, Joel, and Malachi, and others. That's what the law and the prophets meant to them. That's the image that was going through their head when he was talking about these things. You see, the law to them revealed God's ways. It revealed who God was. And the prophets of the Old Testament were sent to tell the people when they were going off the rails. The prophets were sent to say, thus saith the Lord. You're going astray. You need to come back. You need to give up the idols. You need to go this way. You need to come back to God's word. That's what the prophets were there to do. And the second part of their role was to tell them what God was about to do. And oftentimes it was judgment because they were going astray. But the prophets came, like, like we talked about with Daniel, the prophets came so that they could tell them, tell the people where God's going, what they can expect will happen. That was the role of the prophets. You see, Jesus said he didn't come to turn that over. The whole of Scripture. He didn't come to turn it over. In fact, he even tells them, what's he say? Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. You can see right from the start, he's holding up the, the Old Testament as we know it, the Scriptures of the day. He's holding them up as the very Word of God. So don't even think that I've come to turn them over. Don't even try the, try the sentence the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Have you heard that before? Hopefully you haven't said that before. Jesus didn't turn over the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, and that's the second idea here. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to throw it over. So then how did his ministry align with the Scripture? What, what does he say? He says, I've come to fulfill them. And this is where the confusion comes in. The gospel doesn't nullify the Old Testament or the law. It completes it. It completes it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, if you would. Romans chapter 3, I'll start at verse 19. Listen to this. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So if you want to know what the law is, there it is right there. What's the role of the law? So we can recognize our sin. So we can recognize that we're not God. And recognize that we are accountable to God. That's what the scriptures are given to us for. That's what the law is given to us for. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since the law comes, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, that's where the Old Testament law works. It's, it's, to, it's to, to hold it up and say, see, you don't measure up. You got a problem. It's called sin. And let me tell you how that sin affects you. Let me tell you where sin came from. That's all in the Old Testament. It's a mirror. It holds us up and it says, Salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament law shows us why we need a Savior. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Listen to this. I just, we need to underline this too. Although the law and the prophets, that's what Jesus talked about, the law and the prophets, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Okay? The Apostle Paul says the same thing. The law and the prophets bear witness to the, receive, to, the, to the Redeemer, the Messiah, the sent one from God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So the Apostle Paul goes back to the Old Testament, and what does he do for his evidence that we have a problem and that we need a Savior? What does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament, and he talks about Abraham. He talks about what faith is, what righteousness is that comes through faith. He goes back to the Old Testament to dig that out. The law and the prophets all point to Jesus. The, law, the role of the law is to bring us to the realization that we need a Savior, that only God can be our righteousness. And it all points to Jesus. Can you, let's, let's all say that together. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. We just need to remember that and get it in our head. Hebrews 9, I won't, I won't take the time to read the text. You'd have to read the whole chapter. But Hebrews 9 goes into a complete description of the Old Testament temple and the work of the priests offering sacrifices and the blood of the animals being shed for the covering of sin. goes through the whole Old Testament process of, of covering up sins and how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament before the Redeemer came. But the author goes on to explain in Hebrews 9, that these are these things that he's, he's painting the picture of the Old Testament. He said, it's just a picture. It's a foreshadow. God gave you this so that you would know what to look for. God gave you this so you would know what the issues are. God gave you this so you would know what the Redeemer would do. That, uh, God gave you this so that you would know how the Redeemer fulfills the law. And that's what Jesus said about himself. Hebrews 9 says that. It's just a picture of what you can expect in the Redeemer. And it all is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we don't have sacrifices anymore. The idea of fulfilling is to make something complete. It's to take an intended design or a purpose and bring it to conclusion, bring it to its natural conclusion. Um, it, it, it's, it's like the, the bud of a flower. We, we, can look at, we can look at a flower... And it comes out as a small little bud at first, and then it blossoms. It comes to fruition. 
That's, that's my weak attempt at saying Jesus fulfills the law. It's all there. All that God is trying to tell us is there in the Old Testament. But it all points to Jesus because he's the one who fulfills it. And I want to look at the fullness of Scripture. I want to take a little detour here if I could. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I want, to, I want you to know how amazing Scripture is. We love to pick and choose what parts of Scripture we like. We love doing that. I, how many times has somebody said to you, well, my God is not like that. Well, I, I'm not interested in what your God is like. I'm interested in what this God is like. And so, so when we say things like that, when we think things like that, then we start to take out passages of Scripture. We say, well, you know that, I don't like that, so I'm not going to abide by that. In fact, um, one of the heresies of, of Scripture in, 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 in days past, in the early days of the church, was, was Marcion. Hey, he had the Scripture that the Old Testament was not valid for believers anymore. And so what did he do? He cut the Old Testament out of his Bible. And he went through the New Testament. He cut all, all the references to the Old Testament and the New Testament. He cut them all out, and he, that, was, that was his Bible then. But we can't do that. It must have been a pretty small Bible. Thank you. Thank you. And I look at, I look at, I look at the life of believers and, and denominations, whole denominations. Whole denominations. The, the denomination that I grew up in, back when I was in high school in 1975, 1976, 1977, in those years, the, the denomination in all of their wisdom, not, not the free church, I'm, not, I'm talking about another denomination that I grew up in. The bishop of the denomination came to our local church and, and, uh, and said, the Bible is not the inerrant word of God. And we had a big fight over it. And my mom and dad were part of that, standing for the inerrancy of the word of God and the validity, the veracity of the word of God to do what it says. The Bible is the word of God. And that particular denomination, and in those years, I say they pulled the stake out of the ground. We need to have a stake in the ground that says the Bible is God's word. They pulled the stake out of the ground, and a lot of believers have done that too. They pull the stake out of the ground, and they say, you know, I don't think I like that passage, so let's go on to this passage, and let's look around here. When that denomination did that, and this, this history is traceable, it's verifiable. They don't think so, because they're still going down that path. But if you look at it as an objective observer from outside, they pulled that stake up in 1976, and now today they're an apostate church. And I don't say that lightly. And why? Why are they in that condition? Why are they promoting things that are not scriptural? Why are they celebrating things that are absolutely pagan practices? Why are they doing that? Because in 1976, they pulled the stake out of the ground and they said, this is not God's word and we'll pick and choose what we want to do. And we can talk about that and we can, we can stand back and we can judge others for those kinds of things. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that we're... We're only one generation away from doing that ourselves. We need to teach our children well. We need to raise our children in God's word so that they hold up the, the value of God's word. We need to value it ourselves, to esteem it ourselves. 
we need to understand that this is, this is life and light. This is training in godliness right here. And the moment we give that up, we divert from God's path, God's purposes for us, and we begin to go down a different path. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't wind up in a good place. It's documentable, if that's a word, in other places. I have thoroughly gone off my script. Let me see where I am. Um, Jesus said this. Let me read it again. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let's just, let's just take a look at this. It's, it's just kind of fun. Not a jot or a tittle. Now, I'm not an expert in the Hebrew language. I, I, I trust in, in books and other people who are experts at the Hebrew language to tell me what, what the original language says and means. So I have my resources for that, but I am not an expert. I don't know how to write Hebrew or speak it. it to me, it looks very difficult to learn. What did Jesus mean by this? Not a jot or tittle will pass away. So here it is. A jot, a yod, is the 10th letter of the alphabet, and it's the smallest of all the letters in the Hebrew language. To us, looking at the written page, it looks like an apostrophe on a word. It's pretty insignificant as we look at the text. We get the word, and my, my ESV version even uses the word iota from this idea. It means tiny. It means small. It, it, it's almost insignificant. I don't give one iota for anything. I don't care about anything. That's, that's where we get the word from, yod, iota, small, insignificant. I found this story. Rabbis told the story that when God changed Abraham's wife's first name was Sarai, okay? When God changed her name to Sarah, listen to this. When God changed her name to Sarah, the, the yod that was removed from that wording complained to God for generations about being lost in that word. Complained to God. They, are you with me? You're, you're, you got puzzled looks on your face. That's because apostrophes don't talk, right? Listen, just go with me. The rabbis said that the, the yod, the iota, complained to God that it was lost out of Sarah's name, and it didn't stop complaining until he put it back into Joshua's name. Jewish teachers used illustrations like this to make the point that there is nothing insignificant in God's word. We cannot change anything. Now, a tittle is a small horn or it's a hook off the top of a letter. It seems, again, insignificant to us, but it changes the meaning of a letter or a word. Um, yeah. So here's an example of two letters. They look exactly alike. The one on the left, the resh, is made with one stroke of the pen. The one on the, on the right is made with two strokes of the pen. To us, it doesn't look much different, does it? But you know where the tittle is? It's where I have the circle up there. Just that little bump off the end changes the meaning of the word. And do you get the idea? Jesus says not one jot, not one tittle will be changed, will be altered. Everything, everything will be fulfilled in the word of God. And he was talking about the Old Testament in that moment. Every jot and tittle. 
Jesus quoted the law and the prophets throughout his ministry. He launched his ministry by quoting Isaiah, by proclaiming that the prophecy written in Isaiah about the coming Messiah, the Redeemer, was fulfilled that very day in him. That's how he opened up his ministry. He spoke of Jonah. He spoke of David. He, he quoted the Psalms. He, he's, he referenced Adam and Eve. All kinds of ways that Jesus referenced the Old Testament in his ministry and built his truth, his, his preaching on the Old Testament. He considered the Old Testament inerrant. He considered it reliable. He considered the Old Testament the very word of God. Jesus points to the existence of the heavens and the earth as a comparison. He says, as long as the heavens and the earth exist, so will my word exist. It won't pass away until they pass away. <clears throat> which is a whole other question, which I, I won't get into. It's all, Old and New Testament, it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Let's look at, the, at point number two, the measure of righteousness. On the importance of Scripture, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed, but the, but the agreement stopped right there. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, Pharise the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. These religious leaders were seen as the epitome of holiness in a right relationship with God. They prided themselves on keeping every jot and tittle, and they had, they had hundreds of laws beyond God's law that they would keep. They created extra laws around the Scripture. We talked about this when we went through the book of Galatians. They put fences up around the Scripture with new laws so that, you, so that you'd know not to break this law, and you for sure wouldn't break God's law in here. They put fences and fences and fences up around God's law, and they loved bragging about how they kept God's law. But for the common man, it wasn't possible. They had a high view of Scripture. They had a high view of the law. But here's the rub. Their, their, their concern, their value, their esteem of the Scriptures and the law, of Moses, the law of Moses turned into an exterior religion. It was about keeping the law. It, was, it wasn't about heart transformation. It wasn't about the work that God does in our hearts, as we read earlier. So Jesus, because of that, clash between exterior and keeping the law and trying to work their righteousness out by behavior, they began to clash. Jesus said some pretty harsh things to them. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. Cursed are you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's where we get when we work, when we try to keep the law, when we try to make the law a standard for our behavior as a, as a means to righteousness. The Bible says you can't do it. We just read it in Romans chapter 3. It's only there to show you that you're not righteous. But the, the Pharisees tried to convince people and convince themselves that you could be righteous by behaving right according to the law. Can't do it. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, but he didn't come to fulfill their legalistic requirements. He came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament has for us and the New Testament. He came to fulfill that, 
but he didn't come to fulfill all the rules and regulations that we all put up around it. He's referencing the Pharisees. You can add all kinds of things to it and, and their interpretations of what the law is. He didn't come to fulfill those things. He didn't come to fulfill my opinion about things. He didn't come to fulfill your wishes or your desires about what it should say. He came to fulfill every jot and tittle of God's word. That was it. I read from Ezekiel earlier. I won't read it again. Ezekiel 36, and it's also written in Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and in my ways. You See that? He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in his word. He reveals himself in his word. He gives us a spirit, which Jesus said, the spirit will come and tell you my words. He'll come and give you truth. He will lift this off the page for you. The promise for a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, without whom we cannot walk in the fullness of Christ. That's the heart of the law, not the distorted opinions and man-made rules that the Pharisees represented. That's the heart of the law. Look at, uh, have a, go to the next slide if you would, please. See if we can visualize this a little bit. Jesus said again, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I, I want you to understand that when Jesus said this to the crowds, it must have just blown their minds. We've read it so often that we don't understand this, but if you're a Jew who was raised in a Jewish home, went to the synagogue every, every Sabbath, <clears throat> heard the preaching of the reading of the scrolls and the, and, the, and the interpretations of the scrolls from the teachers, if that's where you grew up, now Jesus comes along and, and the Pharisees were the king of that. The Pharisees are the ones who were teaching all of that. The Pharisees are the ones who were, were saying, you better act like this. The Pharisees are the ones who said, boy, they, remember the prayer, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. That was the Pharisees. And everybody walked around them knowing that they were keepers of the law and their righteousness, esteemed their righteousness. So God comes, Jesus comes along and he says, you know what, if your righteousness isn't greater than theirs, you're in trouble. What in the world? I can't keep up with the Pharisees as they keep up with God's word, nobody can keep all of that. What in the world? How did, what do you mean? This is radical teaching that he's giving to them. And so here's what he's saying. The works of the, of the Pharisees, the law, if you add on all the things that, that God never intended, all the interpretations, you make it an exterior religion. It's all concerned about behavior and how I look to other people. It's not concerned about what's going on in here. It's works. It's man-centered. It's, it's man's opinion. It's man's idea of what the behavior should look like. You just do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and I'll check it for you, and then you'll be righteous. But that leads to slavery. It leads to legalism. And you know what else? <clears throat> this is really important. The Spirit isn't in it. The Spirit isn't in it. And that's why what Jesus was teaching was the vertical part. That's where he says, it's an interior work that God is doing. It's in your heart. It's a heart work. And we sang about that earlier. Lord, only you can do these things. Only the Holy Spirit can do these things. That's why he, he revealed to the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to put a, 
In place of your heart of stone, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to give you a new spirit, small s and capital S. I'm going to give you a new spirit so that you can, you can do the works of the, of the law, the statutes, and the word that I've given to you. It's a work of the heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that's in us, not us. And that's what leads to transformation. That's what leads to life. And if you, if you read ahead in chapter 5, <clears throat> we're, we're going to talk about these things. But if you go ahead in chapter 5, Jesus takes the next six or seven points and highlights this. He says the, the law of murder, the law of reconciliation, the law of adultery, the law of divorce. And one of the most important things he says, he says two really critical things that we should remember in this passage. One is, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the other one was, but I say to you. And I went ahead and underlined all the times he said, but I say to you. That's why he speaks with such authority. Because he's come to fulfill that law. Now, you've said that you shouldn't, you, the law says you shouldn't murder. And, and these guys over here, the Pharisees, they told you what that looks like. But listen, I say to you, it goes on in here. This is where we got to get people. You see, that teaching was radical to the people of the day. It must have blown their minds. The Pharisees were trying to make the law manageable. They were trying to make it, they were trying to, make it compact and small so that they could take off pieces of it and they could fulfill it, but it was all exterior. Jesus said, I, I, it's a quality thing. It's not quantitative, it's qualitative. I want to get in your heart. and I want you to walk in my statutes. I want you to walk in my ways, but you can't do it if you don't let me lead you and guide you. This is radical teaching in Matthew chapter 5. So what do we do with that? I hope these truths are evident to us today. I hope, I hope I'm, I'm preaching to the choir today. But for many, it's, it's not only the Pharisees that wrestle with this view of Scripture. All through church history, there have been those, and I, I encourage you to Google Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, and read all about his story and how he tried to delete the Old Testament or discount it. Even today, there are those who struggle with this idea of the Old Testament. For example, you've probably heard me say this before, but I'm still struck by the, the time I was teaching on the book of Exodus. I love the book of Exodus, and uh, I love teaching about the Exodus and, and going to the mountain and receiving the law, and I just love preaching from the book of Exodus. So one day I was up here preaching on that, and, and a guy walked up to me afterwards. <clears throat> he said, Mike, that was, that was a great sermon on the Old Testament today. That was just, man, that was so good, talking about Moses and all of that. And he said, I find it rather amazing that you brought that all out to us today because I don't think we should even be teaching in the Old Testament. So he was complimenting me on one hand, and the, and the compliment was even greater because he said I had no business being there anyway. For him, we only need the New Testament. What did Jesus say? I think we said it. He holds the Old Testament in high esteem. Um, I'll not use a name. I guess you might know this story. <clears throat> I won't use a name. But a mega church pastor, just recently, I mean, last weeks or months, a mega church pastor in part of our country, a well-respected author, a gifted communicator, a preacher, has a church of tens of thousands of people, made this comment to his congregation and to the world, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. 
He just said that in the last few weeks. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You see, this teaching has everything to do with today. And he goes on to explain all kinds of reasons, and every one of them has easily knocked down his arguments for why we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Apparently, he's never read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Because Jesus holds the Old Testament in high esteem. You find lots of people today that think they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ fully and yet more or less reject the Old Testament. As Jesus' view was the Old Testament was God's word and that it would all be fulfilled in him. But I have to say this this morning. The question of our attitude towards the Old Testament inevitably raises the question of our idea about who Jesus is. We can't separate the two. If he lived by, if he quoted, if he fulfilled all that was written, then how can we discount the Old Testament today? There's one more thing that I skipped over, and it's the measure of greatness. The measure of greatness. Jesus said, if you loosen these things, it's the idea, if you, if you loosen up the law, if you, if, you, if you take a casual attitude towards the law, the, the idea is that of pulling the pegs out of a tent, the stakes out of a tent, and watching the tent just kind of fall in on itself. That's the idea. So if you have a casual attitude about the law, about the, about the Old Testament, you're loosening the stakes. And if you teach others to do the same, you're in trouble. But for those who hold the law in high esteem, those who regard the law, they will be considered great in God's kingdom. We need to teach it to others. The Pharisees tried to make it all manageable, but it was all arrogance and self-sufficiency. But for those who esteem God's word, who seek the spirit to reveal it, to live in it, to buy it, and to teach others, they will be called great in heaven. Blessed. That's where we came from for the Beatitudes, isn't it? Blessed are those. Blessed are you. Happy are you. God is pleased with you. You are walking in his blessing if we hold up his word. God's word is amazing. What it does in our life is all the more amazing. So that makes me ask the question, how should we come to his word? If this is all true, then how should we come to his word? I think if you're reading through the Bible this year, and many of you are, and I, I challenge you to continue with that, if you come to God's word, open up his word, the first thing we should do is pray and say, Lord, this is your word. You said you would speak through it. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to speak to me through your word today. And then another part of that prayer is, Lord, I need your spirit because you said that you would give your spirit to me so that he would, he would reveal your truth to me. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come, please, and lift the words of God off the page and into my heart? And then the other part of that prayer is, Lord, when I come to your word, I lay myself before you and I say, I will let your word diagnose my heart, change my heart, and transform my life. That needs to be our prayer as we come to him in his word. When we do that, it's, Jesus started with blessed are the poor in spirit. Those, that's where he started. 
And now he comes to the Word and he says, we come to the, added, the Bible with the same attitude. All of you, God, let me hear your Word this morning. Um, let's, let's close by doing this. And I'll ask the worship team to, I think we'll skip the last song this morning. Um, I'd like you to stand with me this morning. <clears throat> This is the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith on the Bible. I'd like to read this together as we close. Let's read this in unison. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of His will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, entrusted in all that it promises. That's our statement of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we affirm that your word is, is what you say. It is, it's, it's the very breath of you. It's your very heart given for us. It's everything that we need to know for life and godliness. It is... It is given by you for us so that we might know you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you give us wisdom to, to work our way through your word, to understand your word, and to apply it to our lives? We can't do that alone. We need your Holy Spirit. So we're all, by, by, by de declaring that, that we need your Holy Spirit, we're just walking in, in the promise that you've already given to us, that your spirit is ours. Your spirit lives in us. And his role is to show us your truth. So, Lord, would you, would, you walk, would you help us to walk in the fullness of that this week? Would you give us, would you open our eyes and open our hearts to see the, the amazing nature of your word and the power of your word? Lord, may we walk in it. May we live in it. May we abide by it. May we walk in your power this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. On your way, rejoicing.